Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. On this week's episode, Leah interviews Justin Seitz via Skype. Listen now for part one of the two-part episode. the Investigation Game podcast, where today I have joining me Justin Seitz, the creator of Hunchly. Thank you so much, Justin, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Justin, I read a little bit about your experience, background, and found you on other podcasts and so forth to learn just more about you, because I was familiar with Hunchly, but not you as a professional. And so I wondered if maybe you would just share with our audience some of your background and experience that provided that foundation for what we now know as Hunchly. Sure. Yeah. So I had a bit of a windy career eventually leading up to spending a lot of time in offensive security. I worked for a number of years building tools to break into networks, doing consulting, um, penetration testing, which is basically think of it like hiring ethical hackers to uh, break into your network or an application in order to tell you how to secure it. Through that period of time, I also wrote a couple of books through No Starch Press, focusing on teaching other people how to write code to build hacking tools. Um, And in 2015, I went out uh, on my own, along with my wife, who's my business partner, and we started Dark River Systems to do open source intelligence consulting. We also built Hunchly, and we do, you know, some, some interesting work and project work along the way. Yeah, so cool. I love that this is so different than what I do every day, but it's still part of that investigative process. So I'm kind of curious, was it ever in your plans, you know, growing up to be an investigator? No, not at all. Like, in fact, growing up, I was, uh, I was going to follow in the footsteps of my brother and become a doctor. And I soon learned that I wasn't a huge fan of the uh, many, many years of university that would be required. The investigative side of me really only came out after, you know, I'd spent a number of years doing the offensive security work. Part of what we had to do was open source intelligence on the targets that we were looking at. And sometimes we were doing social engineering, which meant that we were going to be calling a help desk, trying to get people's passwords or trying to get information that we shouldn't be able to get. And so we had to be really good at collecting information online to make our chances of success higher. So it was through all of that that I started to take a bit of an interest in counterterrorism and how we could look at open sources of information to learn more about uh, groups like ISIS before they were even called ISIS. Um, And yeah, it was just kind of this natural progression where I found myself all of a sudden being hired to do this work where it was more targeted, looking into businesses, looking into individuals for civil cases along with a whole host of other things. So I didn't plan on it, but what I found was that I thoroughly enjoy the process, you know, and Mm -hmm. the process being, you can call it investigations, you can call it due diligence, but I just love that taking a company or taking a group of people and really honing in on how they do what they do. I find that completely fascinating. Yeah. It's just so funny how these worlds intersect because those are things that are very important to us as well just kind of tackling the same problem from two different sides and could even work in tandem it's your uh, offensive I hate saying it that way (laughs) that sounds like it's gonna be offensive but when you were doing your security work and looking for breaches and things like that what I find funny as you were talking about that is that people actually call us and we'll have somebody call us about an embezzlement 
And we've been working lately internally to kind of change how we're communicating about things so we can get rid of this stereotype. But they really think that we're going to like break into their office in the middle of the night and then we're going to like somehow in the middle of breaking into their offices, hack into their computers and like get what we need. (laughs) I'm like, no, you're the owner of the business. We just work with you and then like you get passwords, you know, like it's really simple, but you were actually hacking into businesses, but to help them. So people think that that's what we do and it couldn't be further from the truth. Anyway, for listeners who might not know, what is open source intelligence to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I get asked this question all the time. Hopefully I'm consistent with my answer, but think of open source intelligence as gathering information that's publicly accessible to anyone, right? So Mm -hmm. this means anything that's available out on the internet, on microfiche, uh, in newspapers, in anything that you can access that is open to the general public. So this excludes classified information and it also excludes privileged information, right? So this is not generally stuff that we can just pull from, you know, computers in some company to see if, uh, if there's a fraud going on, for example. So when you think about OSINT or you hear the term OSINT or open source intelligence, just really think about people who are very good at doing research. That's really what it boils down to is research on publicly available information. A database that we use is called TLO, TransUnion. Uh You're familiar with TLO. That is essentially the extent of our open source intelligence on most of our cases. Is your focus kind of before it's synthesized into that database, though? Is that where you would be more involved instead of having that like nicely packaged <laughs> report that something like TLO would get? Yeah, so us? I mean, generally speaking, and I do leverage some tools that are similar to TLO, but TLO mm-hmm. has, as you would know, you know, they have some restrictions on who can use the platform, what you're yeah. using it for. Because obviously you can easily abuse that platform uh, in ways that I don't think anybody would want. So generally speaking, when I'm pulled into investigations or to assist on something, it is really kind of somebody's already got a TLO report or they've used, you know, accurate, clear or something else. And the problem is, is it doesn't tell the entire story, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my job is to really go out and get creative with what else can I do to either challenge what's found in those materials, corroborate what's going on in those materials, or sometimes those reports are fairly, you know, I've seen some cases be really successful just leveraging something like TLO, Mm -hmm. but in a lot of cases, it requires a lot more work, right? So that's where I kind of come in where I can kind of sit back and survey where is the information that's going to be useful? How can I get that information? How do I tie all of this together in a, in a coherent manner? TLO is kind of like a tool. It's not one that I use. I use a, a tool called ScopeNow. Uh, okay. It's spelled with yeah. a K. Um, so scope now is a, is a great tool that can provide me some quick information to kick off some leads, but often a lot of my work is just manual. You know, I go out and it's a lot of Googling, digging into websites, digging into business records, all of that stuff. And I noticed that you have some trainings on dark web and using that. How much of your work actually involves using that side of the internet? (laughs) So, I mean, that's a funny thing, right? Is that... Like if you looked at a pie graph of, you know, the cases I've worked, there'd be this very, very tiny, thin slice that involved any dark web work. Mm -hmm. The last time that I did anything dark web related was a case relating to um, a large breach at a financial. 
And uh, they wanted me to basically go into the dark web and see if I could find this information, see if I could make contact with the hacker who had stole the information, see if there was the ability for me to purchase some of those materials back from the hacker to validate uh, whether mm -hmm. it is in fact their data. But that was really rare. And I mean, I, it, it's not uncommon for people to come to me and say, hey, can you look to see if there's mentions of our company on the dark web? And mm -hmm. often my response back is, well, I can do that, certainly, but I think you should probably be paying attention to what the people are saying out in the public about your company. Yeah. Yeah, um, so because, you know, your average person is not going to even, you know, they're aware of what the dark web is, but they're either going to be too scared to, to go and engage with it, or they're not going to be technically proficient enough to protect themselves. So, you know, it's just one of those things. It's, it's spooky, scary stuff. But the flip side is a huge portion of my customers are in law enforcement, and that is a completely different lens on yeah. a different problem, right? So there's a tremendous amount of criminal activity going on in the dark web. The technical challenges for a dark web-based investigation is different than publicly accessible website or service, for example. So that's why, you know, I do teach people, you know, how to basically get started with dark web investigations, and then we also produce a daily report that kind of lists all of the hidden services on Tor. Tor is just mm -hmm. one of the dark nets and hidden services. When you hear that term, just think of websites or, or uh, you know, they're basically regular services like email and other things you would see on the regular internet, but they're run on the dark web. So you'll, the term is hidden services. So we provide a report that goes out every morning. It's a spreadsheet that tells people here are the new services we discovered in the last 24 hours. And that's really useful for people who are trying to protect their large, you know, fortune 500, or if they're a law enforcement member, who's trying to track down, you know, anything from drug dealers to uh, pedophiles. I've attended quite a bit of dark web, dark net type training or deep web. Is that right? Deep web, dark net. There's a slight distinction, right? So, you know, you'll often see like this uh, infographic of an iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. And it's like and the tip of the be. iceberg is like the publicly available information. And then the middle piece of the iceberg, that's kind of the fat bit that's under the surface is called deep web. Right. And so deep web is just information that's not publicly accessible upfront. So think of it like TLO would be considered deep web, right? You can't just Google right. and pull a TLO report. Anything right. behind a paywall or a login or requires to be a paid service, that's what we would consider deep web, right? And it's mm -hmm. huge, fast. Okay. We actually don't know how large that is because, you know, there's data sets everywhere. And then dark web, the distinction is that dark web requires you to use specialized software to access it. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's always in your mind. You can make that distinction. Deep web is just stuff you got to pay for, or get behind a paywall, or you need a special privilege to access. Dark web means that you need to use specialized software to access it. Thank you for clarifying that for me. But the dark web type stuff, I just kept thinking, I mean, it's just not in my skill set at all, but I just kept thinking like someone somewhere has to be creating something that would kind of create like what you're talking about, create this list so that those of us who aren't skilled in that area could at least be informed, but not having to like go figure it out ourselves. So that's super handy. And at the end of the show, we'll talk about how we can connect with you to get more of that information. So using open source intelligence and also dark web techniques and methods and researching, how do you apply those things in the real world in investigations? That's a great question. And, and I think that, you know, where I'm a bit unique is that I kind of have this background 
in a wide variety of skills, right? So I've done development work, system administration, hacking stuff, and then, you know, some more pure OSINT. So for me, for example, recently I worked on a case that involved an application developer. So a company that builds an application for your computer and they make money from this application, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. part of the problem was, is that there was people who feel that that company was misrepresenting how that application actually made the money. Now, when they brought me in, the idea was like, can you just go out and find any information on, you know, how this works and what people are saying about it online, that kind of thing, right? But the, the funny thing was, is it actually turned into this really comprehensive kind of labyrinthine investigation where I started out doing pure open source intelligence, looking at who is records for the web domains, looking at you know, online reviews of the software, forums, social media, the, you know, the stuff that you would usually do in an open source investigation. But in order to actually get to the answers I was looking at, I actually had to use skills from my previous life, which included being able to analyze a program and how it operates. So how that application operates on your system, which is directly relevant to my previous career in uh, doing reverse engineering and hacking work. And then I had to be able to analyze how that application communicated back to the mothership, which involves some network analysis and packet capturing, mm. which is just basically observing the traffic from your computer to the company's main servers. And then I had to actually write code so that I could analyze some of the information that I was seeing being passed back and forth. So the interesting thing was, is that, you know, at the conclusion of this investigation, the interesting thing was is that I'd actually had to leverage about six or seven different skill sets and actually in order to answer the question. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is where, in some cases, I'm a bit more unique that I have kind of this background in a variety of different areas. And I often tell people, like, for me, I have knowledge that's a mile wide and an inch deep, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the useful thing is that for me, because I'm a generalist, I have the ability to kind of quickly switch, uh, you know, context switch between doing application analysis and pure OSINT to coding, to data analysis, to visualization, you know, and I can kind of move yeah. between all of those things in order to answer questions for people. So let's take a break real quick and we'll be right back. If you're a professional with continuing education requirements, then you've sat through your fair share of required training hours. Let's just say you probably didn't love it. And every year, the requirement hours sneak up on you at the worst time. That's why we've created the Investigation Game, an interactive CPE training experience that qualifies for two hours of ethics continuing education. The Investigation Game, the case of the Man Cave, gives players the opportunity to walk through an investigation and solve a case based on actual events. Think of it as your favorite detective game, but with an opportunity to learn while you play. Players are given case details, decision-making steps, and additional case information to then quantify the embezzlement loss, identify schemes used, and uncover assets purchased with stolen funds. Gameplay wraps up with a presentation providing the case solution and awards the winning teams. This valuable event makes earning continuing education hours fun by combining a real-life case study with an interactive team-building game that we think you're going to love. To learn more or to register, visit InvestigationGame.com. 
Welcome back to my interview with Justin Seitz. So, Justin, I do have a question because you mentioned social media in there. To me, social media feels like a black hole in investigations. We talk about this in our office and in some of our trainings a lot. How do you know when are you done looking? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Social media is a black hole, generally an emotional black hole, but the the problem is exactly that. You know, generally when I'm hired to do some work, I'm very upfront with a client. So I tell them, you know, I'm going to spend this much time investigating something and I stick to that. And that's more from a client management perspective, as I'm sure you and I could talk for yeah. hours about how to manage client investigation clients, right? Yeah. yeah. And it takes some skill and experience to do that. But the, the real thing for me is that because probably my best skill is my tenacity, it's also my greatest downfall because part of the issue is that you always feel like you're one click away from the answer. And so you start going down the rabbit hole and you feel like, okay, it's got to be here somewhere. It's got to be here somewhere. The clock's ticking in terms of your billable hours, how much time you can spend. And I just use discipline. When the time is up, the time is up. And it's an right. opportunity for me to reach back to the client and say, Based on my experience, I don't think I'm going to find anything more. Or based on my experience, I'm finding a fresh set of breadcrumbs here. Can I get 5, 10, 20, 40 more hours to run these things down? But you never know. And, and I, I guess I'm also very upfront with clients where I tell them, hey, listen, you know, there's no guarantees in this work, right? So what looks yeah. obvious can sometimes not be obvious. What seems simple can actually be very complex. Part of it is making sure you're communicating that up front so that you can have a stopping point and just say, okay, I'm done. I stopped. The client is not surprised by that. There's no shock that you've kind of pre-warned them in advance before even signing a contract that, you know, I might turn up with nothing, but then it's important to just explain your methodology and talk about all the things you tried to do to find the answers they're looking for. Um, but you're right. Like uh, for me, um, this is why I also like personal research projects because there is no hourly cap. I can just <laughs> pour time into it yeah. when I can, like on weekends or evenings or whatever. And I don't have to stop. I can stop when I'm either mentally exhausted from the project or I can keep going. Right. Right. On these types of research projects, I think this is a great time just to talk about Hunchly. What is the story behind Hunchly? Where did you get the idea and how has it evolved and how is it helping people now? Sure, yeah. As I mentioned before, I had a deep interest in counterterrorism and, and watching as groups were like terrorism groups were starting to leverage social media in pretty new and unique ways at the time. So I was, you know, kind of following a bunch of different people and watching them online. And as the war in Syria started to heat up, one of the big things was uh, foreign fighters. So people who were leaving the United States, leaving Canada, England, you know, everywhere to go join the war on one side or the other. Generally, in the context I was looking at, it was people who were going to join ISIS to fight. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was uh, there was a couple of people that I was watching up here in Canada that had certainly posted materials that I thought were interesting, that I thought were pro-ISIS. You know, as I was laying in bed, I flipped my phone on just to do a quick read of the news and their faces were on the news because they had jumped ship and had managed to make it overseas. So right away, I recognized them because I'd been following their social media and I quickly ran to my laptop to see if anything had changed and their social media profiles were completely gone. Mm -hmm. The worst part of it was that I'd been following these guys for a while and I didn't take any screenshots. I had like limited notes. 
and I didn't feel too great about that. You know, as I often describe the feeling like when you back your car into your neighbor's vehicle or you delete a report by accident, you get that kind of sick feeling in the pit yeah. of your stomach. I was like, man, you know, how did I let this happen? Right. So at that moment, I'm like, okay, I'm going to build a tool that I can just plug into my browser. And when I turn it on, it's going to capture everything I look at. I don't care. It can just store it all in a folder for me. And everything I look at, I want it stored. So I never have to go through this problem again. Mm -hmm. So I built the tool. It wasn't called Hunchly. It had no name. And I was using it. But I was also using it in private investigations that people had brought me in on. And the interesting thing was, is that as I was working in a, a team of people, it was always me who seemed to have the screenshots or the information when it came time to prepare a report. And so people started kind of asking me, like, how do you know when to screenshot stuff? Like, you always seem to have this stuff on hand. I'm like, oh, I don't. I just, like, built this stupid little Chrome tool. And, you know, it just, it does this for me. And they're like, well, can I have it? I'm like, uh, I guess. <laughs> so I would have to literally, like, remote into people's computers, you know, a handful of people I worked with and like get this all set up. It, it was really awful. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I started asking around in the open source intelligence community, do you have this problem? Hey, do you have this problem? Does anybody else, like, is anybody else as dumb as I am? Yeah. Okay. So nobody ever came back and said they were as dumb as me, but they did definitely say <laughs> that they had the same problem and rightly so. Yeah. So at that moment, I'm like, hmm, you know, I wonder if there's a product here. So I uh, gave it a name, spent a few months building up the initial version of it, gave mm -hmm. it a dashboard and made it properly integrate with Google Chrome. In 20, uh, I guess it was December of 2015, I released it and uh, it was pay to play. So you had to pay to get it. There was no free anything. And, yeah. uh, you know, we started to get people signing up and using it and it was awful and slow and clunky and crashed and to all of those people who who stuck with me to today, if you're listening, thank you, we appreciate it. And then we just kept improving it and building on it and talking to investigators and understanding challenges. And mm -hmm. in 2018, we released kind of a completely re-engineered version of the product that is much more what people wanted in their investigation tools. So it's been an interesting ride. We're up to about 4,000 active weekly users right now, which is not, you know, you're not going to see us on the cover of TechCrunch anytime soon, but we've got a, a steady kind of growth curve and we're really enjoying working with people. Like I get to, you know, in any given day, I can be talking to a journalist about how they're investigating a kleptocracy in Russia and I can hang up the phone wow. and pick up a child pornography investigator in the United States who's working on closing the loop on someone operating out of the Philippines. And then I can hang up the phone and talk to a financial analyst who's trying to determine whether a company is engaged in fraud or not. I feel like this has been a huge gift for me that I, I'm getting a PhD in investigations in, in every possible way. And then we try to take all of that, that feedback and those conversations and get it back into the product to make their lives easier. Oh man, there's so much about this story that I love so much. One, the fact you were personally tracking these guys on social media at the very beginning, these terrorists or yeah. suspected terrorists. Like it was just a personal thing. You weren't hired by anybody. You were no. just keeping an eye on them. That is amazing. And then to realize that that tool was going to be needed. Gosh, I feel like in any social media feed or on the news, it's talking about how technology is terrible in one way. But then, you know, at the same time, the fact that this is even possible. I mean, if the technology is going to exist... 
I'm so appreciative of you and people like you who are going to take technology and say, well, I mean, we could make something to track the bad stuff that's going on or to find the bad stuff or to help just to be that counterbalance to whatever's going on in the world. And, and then to take a problem that you had and then just start looking at developing products, a product, and that you took that step to make a version one. I just think that's wonderful because that is such a vulnerable, I mean, we're in the middle of doing this ourselves. And to me, it's such a vulnerable step to take this concept that's in my head and like kind of my child and share it with the world and know like, "Mm, it's not really there just yet, but like, let's see if we can do this. And I do think that products and that creativity and solving these types of problems just helps make the world a better place. I'm really passionate. Thank you for that. I'm really no, and I mean, it's, you, you, <laughs> yeah, and you're right. It's terrifying. And we go through a bit of terror in, in every release that we put out. But it's really because, as I said to one of my first hires, our, our head of support in QA, Phil, you know, when he first came on board, I said, listen, man, it looks like a cute little detective and everything, but uh, we have to care very deeply about our customers because yes. they are working on murder cases. They are working on trying to save children. They are working on against corruption. They're working on important stuff. And if our product fails them, we've actually become a hindrance in truth, right? And that's mm-hmm. really what yeah. we do is to support truth seekers of all kinds. And, and we see that as a function of journalism and law enforcement and what you do. Everyone's a truth seeker. We take it seriously, but we also have a lot of fun with it. And most people will tell you that, you know, I I tend not to take too many things too seriously, except our product. Yeah. And and actually that reminds me of something else that you said earlier, if you've got 4,000 weekly users and maybe you're not on the front of some tech magazine, but I think that current product development and technology is so amazing in that you can serve a niche. And that we can be that specific, that we can be a niche within a niche within a niche and create things that actually solve somebody within that niche, their day-to-day problems. Yeah, no, it is. And it's always that thing too, right? Like people, everybody talks about TAM, right? You know, total addressable market. Mm -hmm. And I ignore all those things, right? (laughs) Because because I'm like, you know what? We're not looking to build the next WeWork unicorn, right? What Mm -hmm. we are trying to do is solve a very specific problem for a very specific group of people. And if you can do that effectively, you've left your mark, right? Right. So people will remember you, you'll have a legacy, you'll be solving a problem, and you'll actually be part of a larger process. And you will have an impact on other people's lives. And that in and of itself, although we do get paid well to do what we're doing, it's about satisfaction and don't worry about total addressable market and don't worry about what you're reading in some venture magazine or TechCrunch or whatever. It's really easy to take $50 million in and go blow it and never make a dollar in profit. It's vastly different to buckle down on a, on a product and serve your customers day in and day out. And it's a vastly different thing. So I always tell people who are interested in starting up products, like just focus on your customer, period. It's very simple. Focus on your customer and ignore all of your crazy ideas and let your customers tell you what they need. And I mean, that's kind of the whole idea behind different market disruptions anyway, like with Netflix or Apple or like with iTunes and things like that. They were listening to the customer. What does the customer want? I think that even though that's applied to a very large market, that same concept applies to just serving a niche market as well. I like it that our products get to be so specific so that I'm super passionate about it because it's not about making everybody happy or solving everybody's problem. It's just about serving the people who care about what I care about. So, so. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so let's go back to Hunchly for a second because I know that some of my investigator friends that do listen to the podcast and as well as hopefully other investigators that listen to you, but they're going to want to know how do they actually see Hunchly at work where they can find out if they should put it into their investigation. Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing to do is uh, you can grab a free trial of Hunchly from hunch.ly. We have in our resources section, we have some recorded webinars where you can see Hunchly in action. And then we have a whole knowledge base as well that you can access from the support link uh, mm-hmm. on our website that walks you through every major feature in Hunchly. And we're also very willing to do screen sharing sessions or demos that uh, that we can walk people through, you know, this is how Hunchly works and kind of here's how it can work for you in, your, uh, in what you do for your investigations. What are some of your favorite examples or ways to kind of tell investigators to to try this? It's funny, right? Because what I often tell people is that the greatest use case for Hunchly will typically take you a little while to experience. And what I mean by that is the most excited emails that I get are from people who they send me an email that says, oh my God, I totally get it. And I go, yeah, okay, what do you get? And they're like, I totally get why it's important to capture every step of your investigation, because today I've been working on this investigation for two weeks, digging into this uh, company, and then all of a sudden they blew away a whole bunch of materials online. They're just gone. Google doesn't have them. Wayback Machine doesn't have them. They're just gone. But Hunchly caught them all. So Mm -hmm. not only do I have the materials that they were hoping to delete, but I also have proof that they were trying to hide something, right? Because I have proof that they deleted them. So that's really where it's one of those things. It's like fire insurance. It's like Mm -hmm. you pay it and you grumble about it. Um, But when your house burns down, you're like, oh my God, am I ever grateful I had that policy, right? Right. Now, the cool thing is, is that there's a bunch of other features in Hunchly that are, you know, super neat and easy to use and make total sense for an investigator. But often what I tell them is like, listen, this thing will save your butt someday. I can promise you it will save you. Whether you're working on something that's going to end up in court or whether you're going to you're working on a research report. We even have people working on their PhD dissertations and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is great because it's capturing every little step of my research. Other than that, there's just some neat features in it, like being able to extract, you know, metadata from images on every page you browse to is really cool. Like I think investigators, when they first see that, they're like, oh my God, that's really neat. Or more experienced investigators are like, oh, that used to be like a two or three step process I used to have to go through to do that. So yeah, I mean, it really varies. And and like I said, it really depends too what type of investigator I'm talking to is kind of how I would point them at the product. If we did more social media research and stuff in our our investigations, we would definitely use Hunchly. But we know our sweet spot. And so that's where we like to hang out. But as I do trainings with our investigation game and things like that, I've run into some internal auditors that say, we work our entire fraud investigations based on social media. And I'm like, oh gosh, I hope they're using something like Hunchly. I mean, especially if people are going to get fired and accused of fraud. I mean, you better have a trail of where you went and how you found this information because they disagree with one part of the game where I talk about it being a black hole and I don't want to give any spoilers, but so then they have to come up and tell me that their fraud investigations are always worked using social media. And I'm like, Oh, there's so much risk there. I would rather track dollars, but okay. But with something like Hunchly, that would definitely make that. 
I would feel better about it if I was over that internal audit department. Yeah. And I mean, if you're working uh, fraud in an insurance company, right, you might not have access to the dollars, right? We, we know entire special investigation units at insurance companies that they're literally spending 95% of their time on social media trying to dig up information. So again, it's like, it's like both sides of the coin, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's times where it's totally relevant and there's times where they're, where it might not be as much, right? Right. right. But in both situations, let's harness the data so that we have this really great foundation for whatever decisions are next. So if that's a decision to fire somebody or a decision to file fraudulent insurance claim or file a case or whatever. Yeah. I love the fact that you're helping people collect that data to then rely upon and be that foundation. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us for part two of our interview with Justin Seitz. To get updates on future podcasts, events, and resources, please subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.